0: You've got your Bibles and we're in Jude, it's uh, towards the back of your Bible. If this is your first time with us, my name is Justice and I'm the pastor here and we've been going verse by verse through the book of Jude. Um, man, as as uh, as short a book this is, it's only 25 verses, I did not think it would take us six weeks to get halfway through, right? And so we are, this is the sixth week and we're in verse 12 And so um, I believe it's going to be speeding up towards the end of the book. But Jude, the book of Jude, it was written by the half-brother of Jesus. And he was writing to a group of uh, Christians. Uh, Many believe they were either um, Jewish Christians or well-taught Gentile Christians because he references a lot of Old Testament stories and historical Jewish history that he doesn't explain, and so he just kind of assumes his audience knows these things. So he's writing to the church, and he's like, I wanted to write to you a nice letter encouraging you in our common salvation, but I couldn't do that because the Spirit uh, prompted me, compelled me to write to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. And so the entire book of Jude is devoted to a warning against false teachers and false teaching to equip you to contend for the faith, to not be deceived and led astray and destroyed by them, and then also to not allow these things to take root in our own lives. And so last week, we saw what false teachers do. We saw um, that they rebel against God and they, um, they... Uh, corrupt others also. So we saw the three examples of Cain and Balaam and Korah. And this sermon today is part two of last week, because we were going to hit all these verses, but we ran out of time. So this is part two, um, shipwreckers, part two. Um, And because last week we saw what they do, Cain, Balaam, and Korah all rebelled against God in some way, and they corrupted others also. They led other people astray. And and then this week, we are going to see more of a picture or an illustration, five of them, of uh, of these false teachers. So let's read our text today, and then we will pray. So if we're in Jude, we're going to be in verses 12 and 13. Are you there? Are you ready? Here we go. He says, These hidden reefs... These are hidden reefs at your love feasts, as they feast with you without fear. Shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by the winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, In heaven, I thank you um, that by your grace and through your Son, we can know you, that we can enter boldly into the throne of grace with confidence that you hear us. So Father, I thank you for your presence with us today, and uh, I thank you for your Son, Jesus. I pray that he would be exalted in our time together today. Lord, I pray that you'd speak to us. We are here. We are listening. We are eager to receive from you, God. So I pray that you would open our eyes and our ears and our hearts to receive from you. I pray that you would guide my speech today, Lord. I need you. God, without you, this is just a time spent listening to a talk but I pray that your spirit would empower this moment to transform our hearts and our lives um, into the image of Christ. So Spirit of God, do what you do and come and have your way with us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Have you ever bought a house? Um, Right now the housing market is like on fire, right? And it's very difficult to find a house. There are practically no houses for sale in Kill, Mississippi. If you have purchased a house in the Kill or nearby, welcome to paradise, right? This is where everybody wants to be, and uh, I'm glad you're here. Now, whenever you purchase a house, if you remember, if you've ever done this, you, you have inspections done to your house. And one of the inspections is like a termite inspection. And the reason why you hire a termite inspector is because you want them to look um, into what is unseen. You you can walk around a house and see if there's any like bugs crawling on it. You want somebody who's gonna go a little bit in depth, poke around, look into below the surface to see if there's anything that you don't see that's hiding that could wreck the structural integrity Of your house. Now, if it's been a long time since you've purchased a house, maybe you will better relate to a colonoscopy. And in the same way, I can only imagine, in the same way, you hire someone to do something very unpleasant in an effort to see things that are unseen, to get below the surface of your body, to see if there's anything there that could wreck your health, okay? So Jude, in this letter and in these verses, he is taking the time to explain a very uncomfortable warning. If you've been in the series, this has been a heavy study, a weighty topic And he goes into, in obedience to the Spirit, he follows the Spirit to warn and do the uncomfortable thing because he knows that there are some people below the surface. They're unseen. He says they've crept in unnoticed. And if you do not address it, they will wreck your church. They will wreck your spiritual lives. But I think the warning is not only to be warned of the people that could destroy your life. He's also going to warn us that uh, we need to be careful that these habits don't become a part of our life. That we're also warned of these type of behaviors that will wreck your life, okay? That's what's going on today. Pardon the disturbing images this morning, but... What we're going to see is five illustrations from these verses of what these false followers or false teachers, these apostates is is kind of a theological word, meaning someone who departed or turned away from the truth. I once believed these things. I once held them to be true or at least professed that, but I no longer, I've turned away from it. And he's saying, these people are in your church. You need to watch out for them. Here's five images Of them. The first one is if you're taking notes, they are destructive. Look at verse 12. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts. They feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding uh, themselves. So they are hidden uh, reefs, hidden reefs at your love feasts. Now, the love feast, maybe your translation says something different, but In the early church, they had these, uh, what they called here, love feasts, but these these gatherings. You know, the Jewish faith, which the Christian faith is built off of, the Jewish faith, the biggest festival in the Jewish faith is, do you know it? Passover, okay. (laughs) It's okay for you to respond when I ask, right? (laughs) Passover is the biggest festival of the Jewish faith, and at Passover, it is a It is a celebration that takes place around a table. And then, whenever Jesus, in the Last Supper, He instituted the Lord's Supper, it is this meal that He shared with His disciples and said, continue to do this. And so it seems like meals, gathering around a table, has been part of um, our faith for millennia. And so in the early church, they said, look, We're gonna devote ourselves to some things. Acts 2, 42 through 47 talks about these things. That they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the word of God, the the teaching of the word. They devoted themselves to um, the prayers, to praying. They devoted themselves to praise and to the fellowship. Part of the fellowship was uh, the breaking of bread. And uh, that could be um, speaks of two things that they broke bread um, in the Lord's table. That they, part of their gatherings, part of their services were communion. But then also they would oftentimes have potlucks. And how much do we love potlucks? And so they would have this service where they had singing and uh, praying and teaching and, um, and then they would have fellowship meals And if you were um, wealthy, you might bring a lot to the meal. If you were poor, you might bring a little bit. But everyone at these love feasts, it was a time to share the common love that you have in Christ. And and at these feasts, everyone was equal at the table. And so the poor and the rich could all both eat alike. If, If you were a slave in that day, this might be the only substantive meal that you had during the week. And so that's, that's the love feast. That's what he's speaking of here when he says there's hidden reefs at your love feasts. Now, hidden reefs are these things that, that like sink ships. They, they're rocks and reefs underneath the surface that unexpectedly sink ships. Um, I was looking up what are some of the most A famous shipwrecks. Some of the most famous shipwrecks, uh, one is in 1983, Giannis D., It was a freighter carrying lumber in the Red Sea, ran aground at full speed into a coral reef. The MS World Discoverer in 2000, it was a cruise ship near Solomon Island. It collided with an unchartered Coral Reef. Although it wasn't a reef, the most famous shipwreck of all time is the Titanic, right? 1912, Atlantic Ocean, hit an iceberg, the unsinkable ship sinks. Have you ever wondered how many, uh, how many shipwrecks there are in the ocean? Well, I'm going to tell you. Um, it's hard to, difficult. <laughs> it's difficult to estimate accurately, it took me a long time to count, but it is believed, I'm kidding, it is believed that there are more than three million shipwrecks in the ocean worldwide. And here's the thing about shipwrecks is that you don't, uh, you don't anticipate them happening. You don't go out saying, you know what, I think I'm going to sh- sink the ship today. That there's these hidden things, that they, these, these ships hit and they sink. And so, what he's saying is that in your love feast, in your gatherings, in your church, there are people that are going to unexpectedly ruin your gathering. Ruin it. Now, you have um, some translations translate this word hidden reefs. Maybe your translation says spots. Spots in your love feast. Um, it kind of is the same idea a spot or a stain. It can be translated either way. But a spot or a stain would be, um, here's the thing, if you get a stain on your shirt, it just ruins your shirt. I don't know anyone who's like, I got a stain right here, right? But it, but the rest of the shirt's really good. No, it's like, okay, I'm not going to wear that anymore, it's... it's, it's It ruins it. It's a spot. It's the thing, whenever somebody sees it, that's all they can look at. Even though the rest is really good, there's just one thing that they look at. And he's saying, there's these people in your church that they're ruining it because they're drawing a negative attention to themselves. It's the only thing you're being known for. Actually, in in 1 Corinthians 11, uh, Paul actually rebukes the Corinthian church because of this. In 1 Corinthians 11, verse 17, he says, but in the following instructions, I do not commend you because when you come together in this love feast, when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. Why? For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you and I believe in part. For there must be fractions among you in order that those who are genuine among you must be recognized. Verse 20, when you come together, it is not the Lord's supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? It says that, verse 22. What? You don't have houses to eat or drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. So he's like, look, when you come together for these love feasts, some people are overeating. So they're eating all the food and they're causing others, most likely the poor people who couldn't bring much, they're causing them to not be able to eat much at all. There's some people who, before everybody has gone through the potluck line, they're stuffing their to-go plate, and they've got several to-go plates. And he's like, get your groceries at home, okay? Like, this is not the grocery shopping time. And he says, and even worse, there's some people who are getting drunk at church. What's going on? That's the idea. These hidden reefs, these spots... On their uh, love feasts. The idea here is that you're using church fellowship to gratify your own selfish wants. He he continues to say, like, what are these, um, how are these reefs sinking people and the church? He says, they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves. Shepherds feeding only themselves. The idea of a shepherd is someone whose job is to care for sheep, to feed sheep. Jesus told Peter um, he, around the campfire, he said, Peter, do you love me? He said, of course I do, Jesus. And he says, well, then feed my sheep. It's like a basic function of a shepherd. But he's saying these shepherds, they're feeding themselves. They're consuming All themselves. It's interesting. As I was looking up these shipwrecks, I came across a term called wreckers or shipwreckers. Have you heard of this? Here's a Wikipedia. It's it's trustworthy, Wikipedia and all, you know. Here's their definition of a wrecker. It is the practice of taking valuables from a shipwreck which has foundered or run aground close to shore. So these are people who whenever they... When a ship wrecks, they run out and they steal everything they can. They loot the ship. And isn't it interesting that he's like, not only do they wreck the ship, they're like hidden reefs wrecking your ship, but they also loot the ship and they feed themselves. That's what they're like. These are people who have gained some form of influence or authority. He calls them shepherds influence or authority they've got a role but they use it to um, feed themselves you've seen this viral video of this pastor this week and there's been this viral video of this pastor i think in kentucky or something and um and it went viral because in his church service he's preaching to his church and he's like y'all are y'all are broke busted and disgusted because you're not honoring god with your money and he's pretty much saying hey you're poor because you're not giving to god and he said, and you're not honoring me, your pastor. And then he goes on to complain about the fact that they haven't bought him some expensive watch that he's been wanting. And he says, hey, I, I, he says, a year ago, I asked for this watch and it's August and you still haven't got it for me. And that's why you're broke because you're not honoring the Lord's servant. It's like, yeah, that's shepherds feeding only themselves. I have to tell you, I think that he has come out with an apology because he realizes how insane that was. Or at least he didn't like the backlash that he got. But there are people who use their position to stuff their own pockets, to take from people. They care nothing about feeding people or caring for people. They only care about themselves. And what's interesting is that this is what Christianity begins to be known for because these people are on TV. These people draw large crowds. And, uh, and so then what happens is nobody trusts spiritual authority because so many spiritual authorities have abused their power and authority. And that's what he's saying. He's like, look, this is, this is um, wrecking the reputation of the church. It's a spot to your gathering. You need to cut it out. Now, you might not relate to any of that because you, you don't see yourself as a prosperity preacher. But it always spoils a fellowship when we come to church with selfish, bless-me attitude. Many, I think in the church, would never go to a potluck meal and eat all the food. You'd probably never do that. But you, what you would do is come to church only concerned with serving yourself receiving from the church what is your attitude when you come to church do you come to church to be served I come I want people to serve me I'm looking for all the things that could serve me and my family and is this a good church for me because they serve me well or do I come to church to serve you know Jesus said I come not to be served but to serve Do I come to church to be blessed? Do I come bless me, feed me, give to me, revive me, strengthen me? Or do I come to church to be a blessing? Do I come to church to bless the Lord and to bless others? That's quite a question. Now, I'm not saying that coming to church doesn't bless you. When I leave here, I'm blessed. I'm encouraged by our fellowship, I'm encouraged and edified and that's what we should leave with, but that's not why we should come. So do we come to church to primarily to get or primarily to give? Ezekiel uh, 34. Ezekiel 34 um, talks about these shepherds. Ezekiel 34, verse 2. It says, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God, ah, oh, shepherds of Israel, who have been feeding yourselves. Should not shepherds feed the sheep? You Go down to verse 8. As I live, declares the Lord, surely because my sheep have become a prey and my sheep have become food, all the wild beasts since there is no shepherd and because my shepherds have not uh, searched for my sheep but the sheep have fed themselves and have not fed my sheep therefore you shepherds hear the word of the Lord thus says the Lord God behold I am against the shepherds I will require my sheep at their hand and not stop to put their feeding the sheep no longer shall the sheep hurt the shepherds feed themselves I will rescue my sheep from their mouth that they may not be food for them. He's, um, there's a strong condemnation for those who feel no responsibility for the welfare of others. If you come to satisfy my own appetite, um, there's a warning there. It's not good. The second thing is that they are disappointing. That they are disappointing. So they're destructive. They come to feed themselves. They wreck the gathering. They wreck um, the church. But then they also, they're disappointing. He says they're waterless clouds. Waterless clouds swept along by the winds. Waterless clouds. They are disappointing. They pro- over promise and under-deliver. You deliver. Know, it's interesting that the water in uh, the Bible is also a picture for the word of God. We see that in Deuteronomy 32.2, where he says, My teaching, or my word, um, drops as the rain, my speech distills as the dew, like gentle raindrops the tender grass, and like showers upon the earth. Isaiah 55.10 says, "For the rain, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that that goes forth from my mouth, it shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish which accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. So the word of God is even um, pictured as being uh, water or rain, refreshment. but clouds without water are a frustration to the farmer. See, I, I don't think we quite understand what a cloud without water is Just yesterday we had clouds with water right typically if there's a cloud that rolls in it's got water here but uh, maybe if you've been from a part of the country that maybe there's droughts and it's a little more dry and then whenever you see a cloud coming, you get all excited. Maybe it's going to rain. Maybe it's going to rain. Is it going to rain? It looks like rain. It might rain. And then it blows through and passes, And it's like, oh, no rain. Or maybe even if you're a part of the world where the clouds bring in, it, it's, it's the wind blowing the clouds, which is also blowing the dust. And so instead of it's promising rain, you see a cloud, you expect rain, but then all it brings is dry dust. It's disappointing. Promise promises refreshment but fails to deliver. And promise without performance is useless. Proverbs 25 14 says, like clouds and wind without rain is a man who boasts of a gift that he does not give. It's someone who overpromises and under delivers. They promise refreshment, but you leave depleted, dry. Did you know that one of the functions of the Christian is to refresh in others? Jesus gave this message from John 7, 37 and 38. He says, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out. He says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now it's interesting that we uh, focus a lot on the first part. It's a beautiful part of the verse where he says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. But then he says, whoever believes in me, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. So a function of the Christian is to receive refreshment from the Lord and then go refresh others. As a Christian, you are a faucet that is designed to bring living water of refreshment to others. Let me show you this in the Scriptures because Paul, he wrote to the Corinthians to um, thank them or commend them for doing this for Titus. And 2 Corinthians 7.13 says, Therefore, we are comforted. And besides our own comfort, we rejoice still the more at the joy of Titus because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. It's like, thanks for refreshing Titus. It's what we're supposed to be doing. He writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy 1.16. says, may the Lord grant mercy to the household of Oniphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. He writes to Philemon in one, uh, 1. 1.7. He says, for I derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. That a Christian, we're supposed to fill up on the w- living water of Jesus Christ and then go and refresh others. But the false follower is someone who doesn't receive refreshment from the Lord and then overpromises and under delivers in their refreshment of others. They, they gather crowds, people come to listen to them speak, but they only give their opinions and not the true and living water of the word of God that refreshes the soul. The third thing is that they are dead. They are dead. He says, uh, again in verse 12, swept along by the winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted. Twice dead, uprooted. What does he mean by twice dead? Is this like, he's not dead, (laughs) he's only mostly dead. right? Is that what he's talking about? Only mostly dead. What does he mean by twice dead? I think he means he's dead at the... the there's no fruit and there is no root. He's fruitless and rootless. They're um, dead at the surface and dead at the source. False followers don't give out anything useful to others because they aren't rooted and connected to Jesus. In the same way, fruitless uh, trees are detrimental to a farmer. I mean, we think about fruitless trees, and most of us aren't farmers. And so we, maybe you planted a fruit tree, and it comes up, and you're like, there's no fruit. And you're like, oh, darn, shucks. But if you're a farmer, and this is your livelihood, this is what you... Um, you do to feed your family and to provide for your family you go out into your vineyard and you look at your trees and all you see is fruitless trees that is detrimental to your life that's what he's saying is it's more than a mild inconvenience that when you depend on these false followers to feed your souls you're going to wind up hungry they're like trees that take instead of give, because that's what trees do. They, they, they take resources from, but they're not giving anything. they're not being fruitful. And again, if we're contrasting these false followers with true followers, true Christians are rooted in Christ. True Christians are rooted in Christ. I'm sure you know the passage in John 15, where Jesus says in John 15:5, He says, "I am the vine, you are the branches." Whoever abides in me and I in him, it is he that bears much fruit, for apart from me, you can do nothing. He goes on in verse 8 to say, By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. He's like, If you are my disciples, you will bear fruit. It's part of the whole deal, it just happens. But it begs the question, and I've heard people ask before what exactly is fruit? What is a fruit? Well, here's five things that we see in the Bible. I'm sure there's more, but here's five that I curated for you, and I've alliterated it. They all start with C. And the first one is character, the fruit of godly character. We see this in Galatians 5 22 and 23, where he says, The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self control. Against such things, there is no. Law. And so a fruit uh, of the Spirit, if the Spirit dwells in you, if you're a follower of Jesus, then what's going to produce from you is godly character. Someone who loves and is patient and kind and gentle and faithful. The, another fruit in the Bible is conduct. There's character and there's conduct. what you do, your life, your deeds. Colossians 1:10 says, "So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord fully pleasing to him, bear fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God that there's a that what you do the good works that you do are the fruit of your life so there's character and conduct and there's converts There's leading others to Christ Romans 1:13 says I do not want you to be unaware brothers that I have often intended to come to you but thus far have been prevented in order that I may reap a harvest I might have some fruit, reap a harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. He's like, I want to come because I want to see people come to Christ. I want to, I want to see converts. I want to see people uh, love and fall in love with Jesus and trust Him. So the fruit of converts, are you leading people to Jesus? Four is a confession to stick with the alliteration, but this is the fruit of the lips. Hebrews 13, 15 says, Through him then let us continually offer a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of the lips that acknowledge his name. We've done that this morning. We, we sing songs to the Lord. We offer the fruit of our lips, our praise, our confession of God's worthiness. The fruit of the lips, confession. And then finally is contribution or an offering or giving. Philippians 4:17. Paul's writing to the Philippian church. He's uh, thanking them really for an offering that they've given. He says, "Not a, that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit." So, what is the fruit of a Christian? The fruit is: Do you have, are you growing in godly character and in godly conduct? Um, Are you growing in uh, converts? Are you leading people to Jesus? Have you been a Christian for a decade or two decades and never led one person to Christ? That's that's, that's a fruitlessness. Confession or praise, is is the praise of the Lord consistently on my lips and contribution? Am I giving to the work of God in the world? So how do I become a fruitful Christian? You abide in Christ. That's what he says in John 15. He says, if you abide in me, you will bear much fruit. See, the command is never to go bear the fruit. That if you stick close to Jesus, fruit will happen. It's a natural byproduct of abiding in Christ. Fruit is not produced by striving. You never see like an apple tree like, boop. You know, like, there's one. Like, it's, it's a byproduct of being rooted and uh, being healthy, and then fruit comes. It's what an apple tree does. Produces apples. He's saying, hey, the fruit of a Christian, because what you want to do is you want to go take the fruit of the Spirit, the love, joy, peace, and you want to be like, okay, this week, I'm going to be more loving. I'm going to be more loving. I'm going to be more patient. Be, more, and be careful when you pray for patience, because what happens is, He'll send you people to test your patience. That's how it works. And so um, every time you go anywhere, you're going to be driving behind the person that is going below the speed limit. But so you want to take that list and say, okay, I'm going to be more loving. I'm going to be more patient. I'm going to be more. And we try to focus on the producing of the fruit, but the fruit would happen if you abide in Christ. It's not about striving, but it's about staying and sticking and soaking in the presence of God. That fruit is natural if we abide in Christ. And the interesting thing about abiding is that abiding is a continual process, it is a permanent position. It's not, it's not something that you, you abide, and then it's like a continual thing of life abiding in Christ. You know, a good way to kill a tree? We'll just dig it up and move it. You're like, well, that happens all the time. Yeah? Well, wait a little while, dig it up and move it again. And then dig it up and move it again. And then dig it up and move it again. And you know what's going to happen? That tree's going to die because it can't become rooted. And in the same way, if we, if we don't re- remain, abide, stay connected to Christ, and we keep vacillating, and moving around and I'm trying a million different things. I'm going to try this devotion. I get a couple pages in, and I'm like, I don't like that devotion. I'm going to this devotion. And we just keep jumping around all the time. It's going to be, it's going to be hard. It's interesting that um, studies show, I'm in kind of the pastor uh, world where you get different studies from like LifeWay. The LifeWay Research does a bunch of studies about church and pastors and things. And uh, studies show that the most effective years of a pastorate, the most effective years in the life of a pastor at a church happen after year five. So you don't even become super effective as a pastor until after year five at a church. So it's not year five as a pastor in general. It's year five at a particular church. So the sad thing is that the average tenure of a pastor is three to four years. Which means that the majority of pastors never experience the most effective years of ministry because they never stay in one church more than a few years. But fruit bearing happens when we remain uh, connected and abiding in Christ. So, if you want to bear fruit, you need to remain in Jesus. They are dead. They are dead. They look good on the outside, but they're dead on the inside. Number four, they're disgraceful. They're disgraceful. We're in verse 13 now. Wild waves of the sea, casting up foam of their own shame. Wild waves. Wild waves. Um, they, they stir up filth, uh, they're destructive. If you're from the coast, you're familiar with this. Whenever we have storms, like hurricanes, go to the beach after a hurricane or after a major hurricane, maybe um, and you don't have to go to the beach. What happens after a storm is the waves, you go to the beach and you'll just see filth. It's just um, debris and trash. And uh, garbage—it's just—it's filthy. That wild waves, waves of the storm—they uh, stir up debris, and dist- and they're de- so they're destructive. They're not productive; they're destructive. A storm is loud and impressive, but it's messy and it brings destruction. False followers stir up filth. They leave things worse than they found them. Jude 16 uh, says this: There are grumblers. They, these are grumblers, malcontents, following uh, their own sinful desires, and they are loud mouth boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. So they're just—they're—they're they're loud. They're impressive. Have you ever seen big stormy waves? They're impressive. They're loud. They're big. But they're destructive and disgraceful. They stir up, verse 12 again, 13, I'm sorry, casting up the foam of their own shame. Isaiah 57 20 says, but the wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet, and its waters toss up mire and dirt. So a true, a teacher of God's word should be someone who goes into the depths Of the sea of God's word and brings up treasure. A false teacher is someone who only brings out trash. They're disgraceful. Number five, they are directionless. He says they are wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. Wandering stars. Um, wandering is, um, it's aimless, unstable, Um, it's like a, a shooting star, we know it's really a meteorite, but a shooting star, a wandering star, what do you, what do you say, what do people say when they see shooting stars? Ooh, right? Ah, Right, so, that, so that's the idea. It's like their, their lives, they, they come in and they're, they're like a flash in the pan. They're like a shooting star. Like, Whoa, ooh, aren't they impressive? Isn't this exciting? But you know what? They are short-lived. They fizzle out. They die off. They dissipate. That's what it's like. Real stars don't move. Actually, sailors... For thousands of years, they've been sailing um, based on the stars to navigate. Because you can trust the stars to find your direction uh, because they don't move. But if you try to navigate based on a wandering star, some believe this could be, he could be speaking of, of planets because I mean they wouldn't, if you look in the sky and just by observation, you can't really tell much of the difference between stars and planets. They all look like you know, sparkles in the sky. But planets move. Stars don't move. And so if you navigate based on planets that are moving, you're going to end up lost. So the idea here is that if you follow these false followers, these false teachers, you will get lost in life. Because they are wandering. They are directionless. They are not stable. And if you... Follow them, you're gonna wind up the same way. An unpredictable star has no good is no good for guidance and navigation. And even so, these deceivers are useless and untrustworthy. Because they wander about. These teachers show no consistency or reliability. They're just here one day and then gone the next. They're all exciting, but then you never hear of them again directionless. Now scripture says that Jesus is the bright and morning star, that he is one that we can trust to shine on our lives and to navigate our life by. And it also says that Christians are true wise uh, people of God are like a bright star shining forever. Daniel says this in Daniel twelve three, where he says, and those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. That these People, true followers, true Christians, are those who who their lives shine in such a way that they're connected to the bright and morning stars that their life is one that shines where people can follow, where people can come to know righteousness through their life. He also says that their end, what we can know about the end of these people is they are wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. That God is going to judge God is going to judge those who wreck his church. He's going to do it. And and rightfully so, it's just. Uh, In the same way that if you found termites, you would want them removed and replaced and, and restored. If you found cancer, you would want it removed. And in the same way, God is saying, look, in the end, they're going to be judged. They're going to be removed. They're going to be cast into outer darkness. Some might say, though, how can God send? Um, how can God send finite people to an infinite punishment? Right. So we're finite. We're we're uh, limited. Um, how can He send us to an unlimited punishment? Eternal hell or darkness. One author said this. I thought it was it was helpful. The punishment of hell is forever, because that's what he says right there in verse thirteen. Um, Gloom of utter darkness, been reserved forever. He says the punishment of hell is forever because of mere man, because a mere man is paying for his own sins. Listen to this: offering an imperfect sacrifice which must be repeated over and over again for eternity. A perfect man can offer a single sacrifice, but an imperfect man must continually offer a sacrifice. Our obligations to God are infinite and can therefore only be satisfied in Jesus, an infinite person. When you sin against an infinite God, it requires an infinite payment. And when you choose to pay for your own sin... In hell, you have to continue to make that payment over and over again for all eternity because it is not an infinite sacrifice. It's imperfect. I love that last line though, that our obligations to God are infinite and can therefore only be satisfied in Jesus, an infinite person. That's why one sacrifice for all sinners is accepted by God because he was a perfect sacrifice. And it's only through trusting in the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross for your sin that you can be saved, that you can have eternal life, that you don't have to experience the darkness forever because of your separation of God. You can experience eternal life forever. We need Jesus. We need Jesus. And Jesus, unlike hidden reefs that wreck your life he restores your life and unlike waterless clouds that overpromise and underdeliver he truly refreshes your soul and unlike fruitless trees that are dead and disappointing he feeds your spirit and unlike wild waves that stir up trash and filth and shame jesus makes you righteous and holy and unlike wandering stars that will lead you astray into a directionless eternity. Jesus is the true north that you can trust to navigate through life with. And with Christ, in Christ, you can avoid the dangers of false followers and of false following. Because we need to not only think of these passages as people to avoid but his practices to repent of. When in my life have I practiced these same things? Feeding only myself, not abiding in Christ, directionless wandering around, promising but not delivering. stirring up my own shame? When when have I practiced these same things and how do I need to repent of them? If we, in Christ, we're going to put to death those things and He's going to live through us. Galatians 2.20 says this. He says, For I have been crucified with Christ. I've died with Christ. My flesh, my uh, selfish man has been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me in the life I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. Let me tell you that He loves you and He gave Himself for you. And if you today will die to yourself and be crucified with Christ, say, it's no longer who I who live. I'm going to die to my selfishness and my self-centered life and repent of my sin. I'll tell you, you place your faith in Jesus, He will live in you. And the life you now live in this world, you can live by faith in the Son of God who loved you and gave Himself for you. Would you bow your heads with me and let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you for the gift of a strong warning, a clear warning. And that uh, you graciously um, help us come below the surface into the unseen uh, things so that we can identify them and remove them and um, restore our life. So God, I pray that you would cause us not to be people who go around and judge Everyone and act like a heresy hunter going and finding people who are false teachers, but that you would just give us a discernment to protect our souls, to not be led astray by false teachers. But Lord, I also pray, God, that you'd help us. Your spirit would convict us of where we have participated in false following where we've honored You with our lips, but our heart is far from You. I pray that You'd convict us and help us to turn from those things and to embrace You in faith and that we would experience Your love and Your life in us. Father, I pray if there's anyone in here who is spiritually dead, as we've seen today, that Your Spirit would make them alive in Christ, by grace through faith, that you would give them the gift of new birth and of belief. Pray that you'd cause them to see their sinfulness and turn from it. Would you give them the faith to trust you and believe you? I pray that you'd transform our hearts, God. Pray that we would leave here and be bright, shining stars in a dark and dying world. We love you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.